Good morning. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. I am just one man among seven billion others. For almost 40 years, I've been taking photographs of our planet in an attempt to understand the Earth on which we live. As humanity progresses, I have the feeling we are still living in a two-tier world, undermined by inequalities, ravaged by wars. We're still incapable of living together. Today, naively, as a child might do, I want to ask a question. Why? Why, from one generation to the next, do we continue to make the same mistakes? I have not sought an answer in numbers or statistics, but in humanity itself. For me, having photographed the world on a grand scale, today it is in eyes and faces and words that I see a forceful means of reflecting the human soul. There is a proverb that says the eyes are the mirror of the soul. I believe it to be so. For there is nothing more compelling than someone looking you right in the eye and bearing their soul. Every new encounter is a step forward, and every story is unique. Witnessing so many other life stories made me wonder, do we all have the same desire for love, for freedom, and for recognition? In a world torn between tradition and modernity, are our unchanging needs the same everywhere? Ultimately, what does it mean to be a human today? What is the meaning of life? Are our differences so huge? Do we not share more values than we think? And if so, why is it still so hard to understand one another? I wanted to ask all these questions to speak about humanity. Perhaps a crazy challenge, somewhat utopic. But along with my teams, we set out in all humility. For two years, we traveled through 65 countries, filming nature and the places man has created. In our quest to meet the world's people, we spoke to more than 2,000 of them. People we talk about, but above all, people we never talk about. People who tell their stories for the first time. I wanted to detach these men and women from their environments, focusing on their faces and words. Imagine in a film where the beauty of the world resonates through their voices. Offering up a journey through vast landscapes, but above all through individual human stories. In human, there is no commentary. I have left their voices pure and direct. In placing poverty, war, immigration and homophobia at the heart of this film, I've also made certain critical and political choices. But these men and women talk to me about everything. The difficulties of growing up, about love and happiness. It is the wealth and diversity of their voices that defines the heart of human.
Those are the words of Jan Artus Bertrand, photographer and filmmaker, talking about the creation of his most recent film, Human. Today, we're going to hear a magical mystery tour radio adaptation of the extended version of this fabulous and stunningly gorgeous documentary film by Jan Artus Bertrand. This is a global film, and I've edited out some of the foreign language parts. But in order to preserve the rich flavor of the film, I've left some of them in. While this show is adapted from the extended version, which is freely available on YouTube, I highly recommend that you seek out and see the final theatrical version, which is a fabulous, visually gorgeous and profoundly moving film in the tradition of Baraka and Samsara, and yet taking it a step further. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this gorgeous audio feast. Or if you have things to do, allow it to spill into your ears. خوشی بی سر و پا رقص کنند در گوش تو گویم که کجا رقص کنند هر ذره که در هوا And um, 
hurt everyone that I love. And I measured love by how much pain someone would take from me. Um, and it wasn't until I came to prison in an environment that is devoid of love that I began to have some sort of understanding about what it actually was and was not. And I met someone um, and she gave me my first real insight into what love was because she saw past my conditions and the fact that I was in prison with a life sentence for murder not, and not only for murder but for doing the worst kind of murder that a man can do murdering a woman and a child and it was Agnes the mother and grandmother of Patricia and Chris the woman and child that I murdered who gave me my best lesson about love because by all rights she should hate me. But she didn't. And you know, over the course of time and through the journey that we took, <laughs> that's been pretty amazing. She gave me love and <clears throat> she taught me what it was. After being married for 50 years, my wife took seriously ill just before we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. And she suffered terribly for about two years as an invalid. For the last two years of her life, 
I was her nurse, I was her doctor, I was her friend, I was her lover, I was her husband. And I had to bath her, I had to feed her, I had to dress her, I had to push her around in a wheelchair and attend to her, all her needs. Everybody wanted me to get a nurse, full-time nurse, day and night nurse to look after her because she couldn't sleep. She was up 24 hours a day at all odd times. And she begged me not to. She only wanted me to look after her. And I loved doing it for her. And I did it by myself. I carried her to the car. I carried her oxygen tank. I carried her wheelchair. I packed it in the car. I took it out. I pushed her around. I put it back. I took her home. I bathed her. I put her to bed. And I loved it that I was able to do it for her without anyone else. And she appreciated it. That's love. <laughs> จมอโอเวมาอลุมมันเปียวบาเนโลอเมยราชุชุตะตาเนพุเซนพิเศษจีเนฮาวจมอเมยราตายเป็นบาโลจมบาโลเนเนบาอานิเนเนจมยาอาน
ended my marriage. I had been married for 19 years, very unhappily, and had stayed there for the children. And so at 50, I decided to end my marriage. And that led to a series of other decisions. I'd been vegetarian for 30 years, so I decided to stop being vegetarian. I'd been working in a career that I wasn't enjoying for 20 years, and I decided to stop doing that and retrain. And I also had been in love with a woman for a very long time. So I asked her if she would have an affair with me, and she said yes. So I went from being a heterosexual mother of two to being a lesbian mother of two, which was an interesting, it's still an interesting experience. And so I sort of turned everything upside down. I just thought, I can't do that life, that life that was so constrained by judgments and mores. I don't want to do it anymore. And that series of decisions has been extraordinarily isolating. Um, and it, I think I'm coming out of that isolation now. A lot of judgments are made about women who get divorced when they have children. A lot of expectations are that it's the most awful thing you can do to your children. That wasn't my experience, actually. There is a way out of being abused. For me, it was tough because I used to have the worst abuse. I would have a gun put to my head and get told to go on my knees and beg for my, my life. Um, and I would do it just, my kids used to be watching. Or I get put out, out of the house, I get kicked out of the house and have to sleep outside on the steps. And if I move from there, I would get a hiding the next day. It was tough because I thought it was me. I was the one that was doing something wrong in our marriage. Um, and one day I went to work and um, I was sitting in my office and I thought, I closed my door. I can remember that day very well. I closed my door and I cried. I had just been battered the, the night before and I thought I needed to move on. And um, one particular woman came and knocked on my door and she said, can I come inside? And I said, yeah, and she said, I need to talk to you. And you know, we had this conversation about the abused woman. And um, I said to her, I'm not being abused. And she said, Denisha, yes, you are. It's all over your face, but people won't see it because I always, like I said, love to smile. And then we spoke about my kids. And, you know, when I started talking about my kids, those were the most important thing of my life. And I thought, if I don't move on out of here, I'm either going to be dead or my kids are going to be dead. So I need to move on. I need to do something. And I went home that day and I said to him, I'm leaving. Um, and I think Mark got a bit of a shock because he didn't realize that 
I was leaving and he said, no, you'll never leave me. You've never, you will never leave me. You love me too much. And I said, well, you know what? That's what love is about, leaving. And I gave him two choices and I only gave him two choices. I said to him, you either go for counseling or I leave. And you know what? Today he's a better man. He's never lifted a hand up for me ever since the day. That's about nine years ago. So nine years ago, I was still an abused woman. So...
як я поїхала з своєї любимої України, поїхала я на заробітки в Париж. Працюю я тут, прибираю, різні роботи прибираю, гуляю з собакою, дивлюся дітей, доглядаю дітей, хто куди покличе. Допомагаю бабусі, тут є така бабуся старша, теж полюбила мене. Люди мене люблять і, напевно, те, Тепло, яке вони мені дають, а я віддаю їм своє тепло, так і підтримує мене тут, так як вогник маленький. І тут я так проживаю. Но те тепло і той вогонь, який був вдома, то я не можу вам передати вдома. От уже 9 років, приїхала я в 40 років, деякі роки в моїй молодості пройшло тут, за границею, в Парижі. І не можу сказати, що погано тут, але то рідне, то гніздечко, та моя хатинка, в якій я виросла, в якій я зросла, і де горить вогник, коли я прийду, і мама мене буде чекати при світлі, той вогник мене кличе додому, до України. Мої діти і моя мама. Вони на мене чекають. І, напевно, тут все є. Багатство є. Все є. Але я не знаю, чи то в мене така душа, вона рветься додому. Aunque sentimos que nos quema el sol, pero pues ahí andamos trabajando. Tenemos que echarle ganas para que tengamos que comer, si no, pues no hay nada para comer. So I, I know that, that I'm less happy with more money, and I know that I still want more, and... Um, It's, it's, it is a, it reminds me, you know, whether it's sex or money or, or any of these transient things, um, somehow you can't rationalize yourself into um, wanting less. I like things and I, I pursue the things, but the things only make me happy for a short period of time. And, and, uh, And then I go back and I have the challenges of my family and I, and I don't know how to, to make a depressed person happy. You can't, you can't give them a thing and make them happy because their brain is not happy. 
So I, I feel frustrated that the, the, the cures don't exist and I can't just wave a magic wand and make my son. Better. Мне было лет шесть, и мы поехали в единственный крупный универмаг. Надо было долго ехать на автобусе, долго стоять на остановках. И мы пошли в отдел детских игрушек, проходили, вернее, мимо. Маме что-то совсем нужно было другое купить. И я задержалась у витрины, где была немыслимо прекрасная, красивая кукла. Я даже тогда цен не понимала. И... Мама говорит, доча, пойдем, у нас нет денег, чтобы такую куклу покупать. И я ей, как она говорит, как маленькая старушечка умудренная, говорю, мама, я не буду просить у тебя купить мне куклу, я еще хочу только посмотреть на нее. И мама почему-то всегда плакала при этом, когда рассказывала. Lele ma am ligey madam ligey lele ma tok duma am ligey waaw te tay ma xamal la ben affaire même bu fekente ne ma ngi ligey bis bu yalla sak deng comme par exemple bu fekente ne ligey na tay mom lay joxe pour ñu lek ko suba suma ligey suba mom lay joxe pour ñu lek ko ginaaw suba kon koku fan lay jele lu muy denc ba ëlëk bu kenn fevrar Dina la expliquer fi ben affaire gis nga à cause de manque de moyens taxna man amna sama ben sœur grande sœur ak samay trois frères yi nga xamanteni ni lañu déwé suma kanam à cause de lan parce que ñom ñu ngi fébar bëgg faju té buñu démé ci hôpital ba liñ ñi laaj pour ñu fajoko yoru ñu ko Finalement, ils ont fait quelques kilos, ils ont fait des renvois, ils ont resté avec eux. Ils ont fait des choses, ils ont fait des Finalement, je ne sais pas si je suis là, mais c'est ça. Il est vrai, Dieu le sait. Mais c'est ça aussi, je vais voir ça. Il y a un manque de moyens. Wow. Some of the most generous people I know have no money. And that's how it should be. When we have no money, it's a different lifestyle. When you see the old people, uh, there was no, in our language, we have no such word as please or thank you. Because it is what is expected of us is that we share and we give what we have. Today, we have to say please, we have to say thank you, we have to beg for things. In the old days, it was just a giving thing that we would share things. That was a part of who we are. And not only for Aboriginal people, I expect people all around the world would do the same things before money. But nowadays, it's mine. There are words like mine. We don't share our things anymore. And it's become, it kills kills us as human beings, as a society, of, as, a, as, a, as a race. When I say race, I'm talking about the human race.
but we deny other people shelter, we deny other people food, we deny other people their survival purely because of money.
حتى من أول لحظة حملت فيها الإسلاح كان في نوع من أنواع الخوف الخوف موجود عند كل البشر وخايف كمان أن يشيل دم أو كذا وهيك أو أنه شيلت الإسلاح أنا صرت بي بي يعني من معلم مدرسة إلى مسلح فإحنا بنحاول دائما الأطفال نبين لهم كل الأمور هاي يعني أنه صحيحنا حملت سلاح بس حملته في شغلات اجبرتني على حمله ولا مو حب انه ارتكب انه احمل دم بي بي على رقبتي مدى الحياه واحس بذنب انه انا قتلت انسان، لا ما حد بيحب يقتل انسان او يلوث ايديه بالدماء. ارف اخذ بامس تكوفات المילואים هوبلتي كوخ של היחידה שלי يتفوس مخبل متبد بكفار بفاتي شخيم ואחרי שהובלתי את הכוח, היינו צריכים להוציא אותו וירינו על הקירות כדי שהוא ידע שאנחנו החזקים. התחושה של הבושה שיריתי בה, התחושה של הכאב, ובעיקר התחושה של פרק האצבע המורה ביד ימין שלחצה על ההדק, ירדה על ילדה. אני חושב שזו נקודה שמשהו חדש התחיל להיוולד. There is a moment, um, and the reason his face is, is always going to be with me. There was a moment when he looked at me, um, and our eyes kind of met. And at that moment, it was like everything else disappeared. There was no sound, and it was just two people looking each other in the eyes. And just for a moment connecting as like two human beings in an event that is beyond any of their control. But at that moment, he, was, he wasn't a terrorist, he wasn't an insurgent, he wasn't an Iraqi. He was a scared man, and he was asking me for help. Um, from that moment on, um, the war changed for me. It became a little more scary, and it became a little more... Uh, I started to question decisions a little more. Um, because of that event, it, um, it put a face. Um, that scared crying uh, man peeing himself could be any or all of them. If you ask me what it's like to be a veteran, that doesn't do either of us any good because I'm not going to tell you what it's like and you understand it. I don't have the capacity to say words that will make you fear what I feared or feel the exhilaration I felt or the mundaneness of day-to-day -day missions when nothing happens for months on end and then the adrenaline when something finally does and it's awful. I can't tell you that so that you understand it. And you'll ask me when we run into each other in a class or something, how, how was the war or, you know, what's it like? But much more useful to both of us would be to ask me how I am now, years after, how I'm getting along. Because that's all I'm trying to do. One of the most impactful things that will occur after being in combat is the feeling of killing another human being. Once you've experienced it 
you'll see that it's not like anything else that you've experienced before. And unfortunately, that feeling, your body will want to experience again. It's, it's really difficult to try to explain to somebody, explain to somebody what that feeling's like. Um, right now, I still feel like experiencing that again. And it's probably why I keep a loaded weapon in my house. I yearn or desire for someone to try to, to hurt me or to break in or to give me an excuse to use that violence against somebody else again. On the 16th of January 2007, an Israeli border police shot and killed my 10 years old daughter, Abir, in front of her school in Anata, where I live. She was with her sister and two other friends, 9.30 in the morning. In her head, in the back, from a distance of 15 to 20 meters, by a rubber bullet. Abir wasn't a fighter. She was just a child. 
She don't know anything about the conflict. And she is not part of this conflict. Unfortunately, she lost her life because she's a Palestinian. I'm an Israeli who lost his uh, daughter to a suicide bombing on the 4th of uh, September 1997. And I'm uh, a product of, uh, of an education system. These are two societies at war and uh, they socialize the young generation to make them being able to sacrifice themselves when time comes. And this is uh, true to Palestinian society and this is also true to Israeli society. Because we are human beings, sometimes you think, if I kill the killer or anyone from the other side, from the Israelis, or maybe 10, this will give me back my daughter. No. I'll cause another pain and another victim to the others. I decide to break this circle of violence and blood and revenge by stop killing and revenge and support revenge by myself. My definition of sides have changed dramatically. Today, on my side are all those who want peace and are willing to pay the price of peace, and the other side are those who do not want peace and are not willing to pay the price of peace. Many people told me that it's not your right to forgive in her name. And the answer, it's also not my right to revenge in her name. I hope she, she's satisfied. I hope she rests in peace. Listening to a radio adaptation of the extended version of Jan Artus Bertrand's most recent stunningly gorgeous film, Human, featuring the music of Armand Amar here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick.
there's so much hatred in the world. Why people have to kill? Why nations and communities and ethnic groups can't get on with each other? Why everyone thinks they're better or their church is better or their religion is better or their way of life is better? After my brother was killed, um, for years I worked against peace. I was very active in mobilization. I was very active in throwing stones. I was very active in writing. And when I was 18, I decided that I needed to learn Hebrew, even though it was mandatory in my high school and I didn't do it. And when I went to learn Hebrew was the first time I sit in a classroom, everybody around me is Jewish, but we're not soldiers, we're not settlers. And that interaction was so different. And we started over really weird things, have nothing to do with conflict. We started our conversations about music. The fact that I love country music, which is really strange for Palestinians. And I found a couple of people who did. We talked about coffee and which coffee is better, uh, instant coffee or Arabic coffee. But it was from there that the whole demonization of the other was so hard to follow anymore because we, we got to see a human being. And next time there was a suicide bombing in Jerusalem, I didn't think of the enemy and suicide bombing against the enemy. I thought of my friends and I picked up the phone and I started calling to make sure none of them are hurt. Next time there was a problem in East Jerusalem and somebody was shot. All these people in my Hebrew class started calling me and wanting to make sure that I'm fine. And that interaction, that reality, made me come to a point of understanding that we have to bring down those walls that separate us. And if we know each other a little better as a humans, we might be able to also love each other instead of kill each other.
gay. And I've known, I've liked girls ever since I was a little girl. And I kept it a secret for my family. And my dad, I remember when Ellen DeGeneres came out, it was the first time I ever heard of the word gay before. And my parents were talking about it. And I asked my dad, dad, what is gay? And he goes, it's a girl who likes another girl and they're going to hell. And so I said, okay. And I walked straight up to my room, closed the door very quietly. And then I bawled my eyes out into my pillow. And I prayed to God every day to please let me like boys. Please make me straight because I knew I liked girls. And so I tried, I tried pretending I liked boys and stuff, but I never did. And then I met, to me, the love of my life. And her name was Jen. And gosh, it was just like my world changed. And I didn't really care about anything else. I just knew I wanted to be near her. And that was love to me. I, I don't even identify as gay because I'm not sure I'm not sure what its relevance is. I'm a man who loves somebody and I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a pain in the ass, I'm lovely, I'm terrible, I'm lots of things. And uh, it's not the gender of the person that I love that defines me, it's the quality of my loving that defines who I am. So the fact that I love a man says nothing about me. The power, the passion, the strength, the purpose, the integrity of the love that I have for Paul says everything about me. It wasn't easy for me to be with a woman in my country because, first of all, women who are with other women will be raped, will be killed, because uh, men will think you are a waste. Uh, men will want to correct you and rape you to become a, a woman. So also for me, for somebody who was married, and actually come out of marriage and actually take that decision was actually a very difficult thing to do. And also as a mother, to actually have to explain that to my son, that um, I am now going to be with a woman and my family. So it, it was really a huge step to take, even my in-laws. So there were just so many things and the society but at the same time, I had to listen to my voice because I live once. Hmm. Yeah, being a lesbian is not a choice, man. Something that is inside you. And that is, that no one can, can help or it's not curable or it's not a disease actually. Because they always say we're sick. They, the, our families even take us to the doctors, to the Sangomas. But ah, it just stayed there. It's difficult with my grandmother because she doesn't approve with, with me being a lesbian. And she hates the fact that I'm one. Even I had to leave home and go stay on the streets because of my sexuality. I even had to force myself with guys so that my granny can approve, to get my granny's approval. And it hurts because I had to do stuff that I don't know, I really, really didn't want to do. Even though I did that, 
uh, even ask a friend of mine who is a dude to pretend as if he's my boyfriend. But that guy, what he did, he forced himself to me and then he left me with HIV. And that was in 2003. I did all that just to get my granny's approval. But now I know that I don't have to do anything to please someone else. I have a son who's now 31 years old, um, who I love very much. Uh, he's gay, a gay man, and the day that he came out was quite significant. Um, I knew that he was struggling with something. He'd been suicidal and he was 18 years old. And he said to me one day, Dad, I've got to tell you something. And I said, okay, son, tell me, what is it? And he's, he went he went pale. His re he really went white and he said, oh, I feel sick. And my heart really went out to him. And at that moment, I kind of knew that he was going to tell me he was gay. Although I hadn't made that connection um, because he's quite masculine in his, in his traits. Um, but just at that moment, I had a sense that that's what he was going to tell me. So I said to him, son, let me guess. Let me make it easier for you, I'll guess. And he said, yeah, okay. And I said, you're going to tell me you're gay, aren't you? And he, he went, yes, I am. And, um, and I, I, just, I just really, really felt for him because it was such a struggle for him to tell me that. And everything sort of made sense because he didn't want to be gay and that's why he'd been suicidal. And so I just gave him a big hug and said, I love you anyway, son. It doesn't make any difference to how much I love you. And I, I think that our, our relationship has really been a lot stronger since then. Um, so that's been a journey in itself. I'm a gay man from Lebanon, and it's, I have, we have no rights over there. And we have no rights in the Arab world in general over there. And I think what I can do more is what I've started to do is, I think I should come out even more. Um, <laughs> I am out to my parents, I am out to my friends, I am out to my work. But I think I want to encourage other people like me, um, which have nothing to lose. Because I have a salary, because my mom, it's proven with time, it took a time, but she's gonna love me anyway now, she knows, she knows my boyfriend, she loves me for the way I am, my dad as well, my friends as well. Um, I think if you don't tell anyone, um, the other moms won't know that it's okay to be gay. So they're not gonna know that being gay is not just about being a drag queen or dressing like girls or being just a hairdresser maybe or a makeup artist. And they need to know that. People should be less shy, people should be more daring when you have nothing to lose. Because some people have a lot to lose and those are not the people that should do the change. But the ones that have nothing to lose.
familia para mí es este comunión, es estar, llegar a tu casa y encontrar a alguien que te abrace y te diga, qué bueno que estás aquí, ayudar a mis hermanos a hacer algo que ellos no pueden, que yo ya pude, por ser una, uno de los mayores, enseñarle, ver a mi papá llegar del trabajo, satisfecho, sentado en su sillón, y pues poderle hacer un café, creo que me hace sentir bien, algo que como que te llena por dentro y si te falta uno te queda como que un hueco en, en el corazón así como que ah diablos qué pasó dónde está creo que la familia es algo feliz notable es otra cosa te llena lo más difícil para mí de pues de toda mi vida la el fallecimiento de mi papá porque pues ay, ay me quiero llorar este ay. fue con el que me apoyaba mucho el que pues no sacaba adelante a mis hermanos y a mí When I got back from Iraq and uh, my good friend was killed, um, his mother did not have any other children, you know. Uh, he had come from a family that had divorced. His father had a whole other family and, uh, and children with his new wife, but his mother didn't. And um, it was really difficult because I felt responsible for his death in a lot of ways just because I was in charge of him. So I would always call her on his birthday and... Um, and on the holidays. And even though it was, a, it was a very difficult conversation, but I felt that's how, um, you know, I would honor him. And from that, the conversations got longer and longer every time I'd call. And then pretty soon, um, you know, she's coming over my house or I'm going over her house. And then when I got married and had, um, had my daughter, we just decided that, uh, You know, she would be her granddaughter, you know, so now she has a family. And I guess that's what family means. Um, I think when I was young, I didn't think I was going to stay in um, the community of religious that I was had joined. And I suppose I didn't understand 
what I was actually doing and that I was maybe making a decision which meant that I wouldn't have children and I wouldn't have a family as other people had. I didn't think, I don't really think I understood that. But later in life, I had a sister who died um, of cancer. And when I saw her family, I realized that when I died, there wouldn't be anybody to mourn me in the same way. It is, as time goes on, then you recognize that you are a parent to other people who you work with or who are friends or who are related to you in some way. So even though you haven't your own family, you have family. So I think that's important to me. The magic moment that I had with my grandfather was right after my grandmother died. And I went to go see him and I knew that he was hurting, but I wasn't sure what kind of state he would be in. And she was his partner 65 years as well as his driver. And I went to see him and said, Grandpa, how are you doing? He said, did you know that for $4, I can get a shuttle anywhere in the city? I was like, wow, that's great, Grandpa. And he said, well, I went to Savon, I went to the grocery store and went to the woman behind the counter and said, I have this list of things. Could you help me find them? My wife has recently changed her residence to heaven. And I said, Grandpa, man, you always help me see the glasses half full. And he leaned back and he looked me in the eyes and he said, it's a beautiful glass.
I I remember he only died recently and he, he was such an important person to me. So I think you know, he taught me how to live and enjoy life and, you know, Um, he he died in my in my arms. And I remember just before he died feeling this coolness, the warmth of his body just disappearing and his coolness just enveloping it. And he just he just died and it was it was just like you know, part of him leaving his physical body. And it just, for me, it was just a little moment of just seeing how precious life is and how meaningful we all are to each other. I'm not afraid of dying. I don't know if God exists or not, but I choose to believe And when I look at the universe, I hope there's a place where our spirits can go and where we'll recognize each other. And as well as my parents, I would really love to meet again my best friend, Shawnee, who died when he was 21. And I'd love to spend time with him, hitchhiking through heaven as we used to do as youth here on earth. I also would love to meet the many good people throughout the generations who tried to make a better world and who tried to work for a world of justice and peace. For me, that's what's most important. And indeed, when we look at the great religions and philosophies and ideologies, and when we try to simplify the complex dogmas and theologies, it all comes down to love. So I hope my spirit is taken up in a great ballet and a great cosmic dance of love where there's no more suffering and there's no more sorrow. Where we can no longer hurt or be hurt and where we can truly celebrate the great gift of consciousness, the great gift of being, the great gift of life. And if In the end, there is no God. I'm still thankful for the gift of life. I've often thought the last two words I would like to utter just before I die are thank you. Thank you for the gift of life.
Thank you for listening. This has been a Magical Mystery Tour radio adaptation of the extended version of Jan Artus Bertrand's recent, stunningly gorgeous film, Human, featuring the music of composer and musicologist Armand Armar. Ha, 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 ha.